Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket. I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. Uh, a book or a film or a TV show or a record that makes someone feel safe. Uh, something they return to again and again and never lets them down. So I'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what it is about their choice that makes them feel so good and how it does its magic. This time I'm talking to the actor and writer Jonathan Dryden-Taylor. And John's appeared at the National and in the touring companies of things like Billy Elliot and Animal Farm. Uh, and he's also one of the writers uh, of the Mitchell and Webb sketch shows, uh, which I used to work on. And John wrote a lot of stuff individually and also with David Mitchell. So a lot of the sketches that you like and probably quote to your friends, John wrote those. Um, John has chosen for his comfort blanket the film Beautiful Thing. You've chosen the 1996 film Beautiful Thing, which is a film I think some people may know, some people might not know. It's slightly hard to see now. I think it's available on the BFI player, but it's not like a film that's always on ITV4. No, it's not on streaming services even, which yeah, really it's surprised quite, me. quite hard to dig up, um, yeah. but it's a well-regarded film. I'd heard of it and I'd not seen it before. I've now seen it. What, what makes this film something that you just find enormous like comfort and, and warmth from? Well, I suppose... The idea of comfort hits people in different ways and hits you know hits everyone individually in different ways depending on yeah. uh, when it's happening to them. But what I find comforting about Beautiful Thing is that in a sort of quiet, gentle way, it changed my life a bit. Wow. And I come back to I mean this is this is very intense to start off with, but I come back to what I learnt from it in a completely non didactic way. Um, very, very often, uh, which is an idea of possibility. Wow. And I don't want to jump straight to the end, although I'm damn well going to do it. <laughs> um, the end of Beautiful Thing is very utopian. It's yes. uh, it, th- There's a kind of, this is how things should be like about it. Uh, and I remember leaving the cinema and with my cynical Generation X 22-year-old head on, <laughs> Just going, yeah, well, I mean, that would never be allowed to happen, that scene. You know, there would be um, shouting and jeering and catcalls and violence. And then I remember very clearly thinking, what if? Yeah. Why not? Uh, why shouldn't... Uh, okay, I'll just go straight to the spoiler. It ends with the, uh, the, the two protagonists, who are two queer teenagers who've fallen in love, dancing together in the sunshine in the middle of their estate, the estate that it they is, live on. It is the most beautiful... Uh, it's very odd to talk about a film that people may, may not have seen and say, the only way to talk about this is to start with the ending and give away the ending. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think it spoils it. This is not a spoiler, but it well, ends It ends with a magic hour dance on the Thamesmead brutalist estate of two young gay boys. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Mama Cass singing Dream a Little Dream of Me. Yeah, it's good. It. Yeah. I mean, it's a good yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, it it's sunshine and it's summer and it's always going to be summer and the sun is always going to be shining. And, of course, that's the contract that the film makes with you right from the very beginning. It's called Beautiful Thing. It says, the thing you are about to watch is beautiful. <laughs> yes. It opens with another Mamas and Papas song, um, uh, It's Getting Better, yeah. which is one of the happiest songs yes. that it's... I mean, 
please stop your podcast app now and just go to your music app and listen to it. It's getting better by the mums and the puppers. Or I could just put it in here oh, and, and just wait for the copyright bots to find me. And it's getting better. Such a joyful opening to a song. The music is chosen so cleverly throughout. The song It's Getting Better is a very clear-eyed, realist's love song. Uh, yes. The lyrics, once I believed that when love came to me, it would come with rockets, bells and poetry, but with me and you, it just started quietly and grew. I don't feel all turned on and starry-eyed. I just feel a sweet contentment deep inside. This isn't thunderbolts and grand passion. Yeah. This is a comfortable love uh, that is... A warm glow. A warm glow. So... Uh, and, of course, it starts with a completely sitcom scene. The opening scene of the film is is almost outside the rest of it. It's, the, it's yeah. off the estate. It's Jamie, the protagonist, at school, getting out of PE, as he yeah. does clearly every week. There's a bit of darkness. There's a bit of foreshadowing in that he is being a little bit teased, not specifically for being gay, but for not liking football and for yeah. being rubbish at it. Don't make him play, sir. He's shit. But you've got... Great big sitcom jokes. You've got Mira Sayal delivering them in a great big sitcom yeah. style. Balls, Balls Mr. Bennett! Mr. Bennett! <laughs> and so with the, with the title, with the sunshine, with the Happy Mamas and Papas song, with this sitcom scene that nonetheless has a bit of darkness to it, it says right at the start, you're safe. Yes. And the message of the film as it goes through is, despite everything, you will be safe. That's an incredible reading of it, I think. And I was trying to work out why I was enjoying it so much. I, I, I will say, I hadn't seen it before. I've now watched it twice. I did really enjoy it both times. Um, and I was trying to work out what it was that was making it work. And that is a brilliant reading of it. It has got, it's a story of, that's come out. I mean, the original play is 1993. Isn't it? yeah. It's Jonathan Harvey, who then later wrote, gimme, 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 <laughs> on the television. But it's, the original play is 1993. And that is during Clause 28, yeah. it's during a time when there is institutional homophobia, where it didn't feel safe. I remember my school, uh, any gay friends I had didn't feel safe. It was not a safe time. And it's a film that has got, it's, it's Tony Garnett producing it from World Productions, who basically did uh, Kathy Come Home and things. It's got a real Wednesday play feel about yeah. it. And a social realist thing about it. It's got a bit of sort of, I don't know, sort of Ken Loachy, Mike Lee kind of, it's on a rough estate. People swear and thump each other. And it's a bit sort of red in tooth and claw. But I didn't feel at any point that it was going to end badly. This is what I mean about possibility. It is a fairy story. Yeah. Uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but uh, that's why, you know, you can't react with the cynicism that my 22-year-old self wanted to, to the ending. Because the ending is saying... Why should this be utopian? Yes. Why should it be a problem for these two lads to dance together? And it does that by being, you know, it is essentially a rom-com. Yeah. You know, as we speak at the moment, there's a film out in the US called Bros, which is calling itself the first major studio LGBTQ rom-com. And I'm thinking, okay, if you count film four as a major studio, then you're 25, yeah. 26 years too late. It's got a great built-in jeopardy. Because I think with, with a lot of sort of rom-coms about affluent, straight, white adults yeah the difficulty is finding the the jeopardy right yeah sex in the city too i don't know why that's come to my mind the jeopardy is that she got a big <laughs> telly for her birthday instead of diamonds <laughs> and it's like we are invited to give it to us that yeah. that's happened i mean the jeopardy in act two of this film is one of our lovers saying to the other get your hands off me stay get your fucking queer hands off me yeah. Because he's terrified that he's going to lose his home, that he's going to be beaten up again, as he as he is anyway by his father and his brother. There's an almost, particularly for the early 90s, there's a built-in jeopardy, yeah. merely about the fact that they're being honest about who they are in the first place. And are you? Queer. Gay. Very happy. I think that's what struck me most. I, this is going to be interesting to talk about because we're coming from different angles. As in, as in, uh, I, I didn't come out. I've not been through this experience. I basically, this is a secondhand experience for me. I'm watching it and going, God, that must be hard. Yeah. Um, maybe today I'll, I'll come out. Maybe this is it. But it's coming out day today, it isn't it? Yeah, day, maybe, yeah. maybe by the end of this film, where, like, turn me gay <laughs> like their worried culture can do. <laughs> now, we know there's only one thing that can turn you gay and it's watching Blake 7, and I survived <laughs> that. Right. Um, but <laughs> what's strange about watching this now is that watching it, realising 
that this is a very, very simple coming-of-age love story like Gregory's Girl, yeah. like you've seen dozens of these, and it's got the same sweetness about it as that. And it just occurred to me, I went, oh, God, it's really strange that then, and probably slightly now until really recently, you couldn't make one of these. Or if you made one of these and you made it gay, it was a really big deal. Because yeah. what's strange about it is you go, this is the perfect jeopardy to tell a love story in because of how society is. What you've got is a Romeo and Juliet yeah, set You're up. not allowed to be together. It is yeah. not permitted for you to be together. It's West Side Story. It's an yeah. absolutely perfect storytelling thing to tell a really simple romance. And at the end of it, you went, I just hope they get together. Oh, they get together. Hurrah! <laughs> that is the only story it needs to be for you to be thoroughly narratively satisfied and feel romantic. It's absolutely beautiful. And the thing it reminded me of, only because my kids recently watched it, is Heartstopper. <laughs> literally just another silly crush. It's not a crush. I don't just fall for any guy who's nice to me. And you're sure you want to spend a whole hour with giant moronic rugby lads? Yes. Which is this new thing that's gone mad on Netflix. All their, their friends are into it. All the kids are talking about it. Which shows you how far we've come. That Netflix can have a mainstream teen drama about two boys falling in love at school and it be no deal at all. Probably you've not even heard of it. It's the biggest thing in the playground. But I can't solve your problems for you, Charlie. What about your friends? Have you talked to them about it? They wouldn't get it. Well, why not? Because they're not gay. Well, that was um, something that I noticed the Gen X is doing when Heartstopper was out. There were loads and loads of <laughs> this was my Heartstopper tweets with pictures of Glenn Berry and Scott Neal well, uh, leaning over that balcony. The sweetness of it. And uh, I did, uh, the other connection as well, which uh, if, if you don't know this film as well, it's directed by Hetty McDonald. Yes, MacDonald. Hetty MacDonald. And Hetty MacDonald, of course, her, is a TV director. Uh, her other big credit, which nerds might know, she did Doctor Who. She did Blink. Blink. Uh, and Heartstopper is made by the Doctor Who crew. It's got a feeling of lovely Russell T. Davis Doctor Who about it. Yeah, Which absolutely. I really like. I'm going to work. There's a cheese salad in the fridge and the one with the beetroots for Tony. I don't need a babysitter. No. I know what you need. Shooting. I heard that. And... You you mentioned sort of how it fits into a sort of coming out journey, and it's it's sort of front and centre in mine. When I was twenty two, when I went to see that film, I was sort of semi out in right. that I'd had relationships with guys and people knew about them; they weren't secret. But I didn't really tell people um, if I didn't have to. It makes me laugh when people talk about how careful you have to be with pronouns now, because anyone <laughs> who's ever grown up in the closet oh, is God. a genius at pronouns. Yes, you know, uh, I spent so much time sort of saying. Um, well, I'm really into this person and they are like this um, <laughs> because that's some way better. And it's funny to me now that that's actually, it's now like a reality TV teaser trope, being careful about pronouns. If you watch First Dates and somebody goes up to the bar and talks to Merlin and Merlin says, yeah. so what kind of person are you looking to meet? And will they be, <laughs> you go, oh, we've got a gay. Um, and and, that, and that, that's used as a signal to the audience yeah. now. So I wasn't in, but I wasn't out and hokey cokey style yeah <laughs> i was shaking it all about um and when you look at the kind of representation that you know kids today are getting with with heartstopper when i was a teenager i was thinking about this today what what had i had there was morris there are other ways to be happy you know we could explore those a little which ends very tragically for one character and ends sort of unrealistically utopianly for another. So you've got this one Edwardian guy trapped in the closet forever, staring out of the window while his wife chatters away. Um, <laughs> and you've got James Wilby and Rupert Graves running away to live in a boathouse, apparently forever. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a huge distance because they're all in wing collars. And, yeah. and Morris is very much about, you know, it is impossible. How do you live within this impossibility? Right. There was My Beautiful Laundrette, which is... Let's say it's not a rom-com. You're not going, no, oh, I, not. I hope the British Asian and the Nazi get together. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily something you're rooting for, um, even though it's a very romantic film. And there's Prick Up Your Ears, which um, when I was a teenager, a lot of the sort of casual sex was a bit rich for my blood. And I can't stress this enough, he gets his head beaten yeah, yeah. with a hammer at the end of it. I just want to go to the awards. I could, look, Joe Warden and guest. I'd behave. There was nothing that said in the way Beautiful Thing did when I was 20 you are safe, this is fine, it yeah. might be okay. It's my mum's body shot, the peppermint foot lotion, saves your feet. 
lie down and I'll rub it into your back if you want. That's the thing that struck me the first time I watched it is I thought, I remember watching late night on Channel 4 on your little portable television where you could watch the films where there might be naughty sex yeah. and some of that sex might not be straight sex. Yeah. I think it's up when you watch my beautiful old drill, pick up your ears and things. And I'm watching them and going, God, they're all a bit, I mean, it's a bit, not just fruity, but like a bit serious. It's a bit, yeah, yeah. Um, the stakes are very, very high. What I found fascinating about this is when it started up, I thought, oh, this looks like it might. It's got the sitcom beginning. But there's a little bit of fruity language. People are angry with each other. They're frustrated. They're on a this horrible-looking Thamesmead estate. It's a bit grim and it's a bit gritty. And I thought, oh. And then within minutes, I thought, I think everyone's going to be okay. Without it ever feeling like they weren't serious emotions, that they yeah. weren't feeling they weren't torn apart by their desire for each other. But the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, what must this have been like to realise you were allowed to be told this story for it not to be about someone and the state comes and finds them and destroys them yeah. or that their wife finds out they're secretly gay it's or not that they a- get AIDS which yeah. was the other story that was being told that being missing and they talk about it it's mentioned it's mm. uh, referred to uh, when he's reading the, the uh, Gay Times magazine yeah. there's, there's a couple of references to it it's not absent but it's not the focus of it it's about the same thing as a thousand straight rom-coms yeah. are and I went, oh, God, this is absolutely revolutionary. And all you've done is the Strictly Come Dancing thing of saying, well, I suppose two men could dance together. Yeah. And it turns out that's fine. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. Do you think I'm queer? It don't matter what I think. When I think about that moment, you know, the moment that makes it a comfort blanket for me, when I had that thought process coming out of the cinema where I went, oh, they'd get beaten up if they tried to dance <laughs> on this date, but why should they? It reminds me of something that came later, which is that scene, incredible scene, towards the end of Six Feet Under, where Michael C. Hall's character is being visited as he is throughout the series by the ghost of his dead father. Right. And the dead father says to him, first of all, a hammer blow of a line, which is, You hang on to your pain like it means something, like it's worth something. Well, let me tell you, it's not worth shit. Let it go. And then says, Infinite possibilities and all he can do is whine. Well, what am I supposed to do? What do you think? You can do anything, you lucky bastard. You're alive. It can't be so simple. And he says, what if it is? Amazing. And it's one of the great questions of TV. What if it is? And it's exactly the process I had leaving Beautiful Thing. It can't be that simple. What if it is? Dance with me. Just hold me tight and tell me Set up in this is, is there's a uh, just a quick plot summation. Um, there's a a young boy who is clearly uh, uncomfortable with the standard masculinity at school, with rough and tumble and football, and is escaping from it. He has a crush on a sort of slightly footbally lad who lives next door uh, on, the, on the estate. I gets a crush on him. The kid who he's got the crush on is being uh, beaten up at home by his by his mean drunk dad and his mean brother, mean drug dealer brother, and the mum, the young uh, gay lad's mum takes in the kid from next door when she sees he's in trouble and says you can sleep top to toe we don't have a spare bed but you can sleep with the other guy and that is the setup for the entire story is these two boys one of whom's got a crush on the other one are suddenly top to toe in bed yeah and there's so many things to pick up on there just in that simple description of the story uh, right from the beginning jamie uh, the sort of central character is as we wouldn't have said then completely queer-coded so um, right. it's not if you knew nothing about the film. I think within ten minutes you go that kid's gay before yeah, yeah. before anything happens. The stereotype of of not being interested in sport. You boy, why are you playing? I've got my kit. Yeah, he comes home and he sasses his mum. School burnt down, did it? Yeah. What was it this time? Fundamentalist Muslim pyromaniacs. Well, funny that. Looks all right when I walk past it. Yeah. Funny that. Jamie always has a one-liner. He's sassy. He also has a black and white portrait of Lucille Ball on his wall. I mean, he watches black and white films. Uh, his, there's one moment when he's uh, in the room with Steve, the, the, the kid from next door, and they're sort of making 
their first tentative romantic steps towards each other, and his mum just is watching the sound of music, and yeah. she just calls through from the other room, who played the Baroness? And he goes, Eleanor Parker. <laughs> and, then, and then carries on with his conversation. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and it's, it's through the door. You don't even see her. It's just a voice. It's, a, it's an out-of-shot voice. And, oh. and that's got a lovely... I, I thought what was really nice is it's got a lovely staginess. That's the thing you do, uh, I, I imagine, in the play. It's yeah. very funny that she's off stage. It doesn't feel like a stagey thing. No, it, doesn't it, doesn't feel, it feels very much in the tradition of British realist cinema fact, uh, and uh, TV. Yeah, a few years ago, I went to see the play... So the 2013, they restaged it, didn't they? Yeah, with Saran Jones as the mum. That's right, directed by the genius Nikolai Foster, and it was a brilliant production. And Saran Jones was was brilliant, but the effect the film had on me, and the effect that Linda Henry's performance in the film had on me, who's astonishing? Who's she's incredible. Um, everything Saran Jones said, if it was a nano beat different or the slightest yeah. difference in inflection from Linda Henry, I was sitting there going, "That's wrong." Because she brilliant though she was, she is the most astonishing presence in the in the film. And I've, a couple of critics, I think Roger Ebert said that uh, one of the things that's interesting about the film is that the two leads, who I think are lovely, but his objection was the two leads aren't as interesting as the surrounding characters. Hmm. What it is, it's a marvelous classic. I mean, if you like, I know, if you like British realist plays and, and TV and things, the surrounding cast is where you get your comedy. I mean, the surrounding cast is absolutely brilliant. The mum. Linda Henry is absolutely astonishing. It's sort of her story yeah. as much as it is theirs. It's the story not only of the two getting together, but it's of her getting used to the idea she's got a gay son. Well, that's the arc. And that's that's the, that's an interesting thing about a lot of gay arc. There was a conversation about it's a sin recently yeah. with the Keeley Hawes and Sean Dooley characters. Some people, a lot of them straight actually, saying... Um, oh, you shouldn't be telling the stories of what it's like for straight people to have gay children. That's that's you know, that's the wrong focus. And I watch It's a Sin, and I see it as something that is a, about what it's like to be a queer kid with straight parents. Yes. It's a bit complicated to explain. Well, evidently, it's so complicated, you chose not to tell us anything. Oh, we now, said to him, we all said, I would what, like what is this? They said infectious diseases. If that's not too us, much you, to you ask. Tell, what, 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 Clive, that, what, Clive, what, Clive, what Clive. Richard, what's wrong with you? There's no sense, as you said, the lead kid is, is so gay-coded. You go, he's, weirdly, from the beginning, he doesn't uh, tussle with this at all. He hasn't become gay. He yeah. is gay. He was gay from birth. It's just absolutely, this is a gay kid. He knows it. There's no self-doubt there. Mm. The neighbour is going, oh, my God, what does this mean about me? He's worried about his gayness or his bisexuality, whatever it is mm. that, that's being triggered here. But there's, the story in this is, is the mum is incredibly uncomfortable with this mm. and doesn't know what to do. And that is the problem that the kids got to overcome. Yeah. Because the kid's fine with this. The big thing is, it's not even coming out to his mum, it's that his mum is hostile to this. Yeah. And she doesn't have to say anything, he just knows she will be. Yeah. And when she finally finds out that her son's gay, she doesn't react in an ideal way in any sense. It's not necessarily what we'd call affirming. She doesn't say, you know, you are my beautiful yeah. son and I love you and everything <laughs> you can do is right. She treats it like a problem. Yes. But... It's back to that idea of safety. She says the most important thing that she could, which is you are safe. I'm not going to put you out in the morning like an empty bottle. So in amongst a scene where she doesn't react in a way that we now would find ideal, she says the most important thing, which is you have a home and you have love, which when somebody is 15 and coming out, are, you know, it's the hierarchy of needs. They need to I've know. got a roof over my head and somebody loves me. Cool, I might be okay. The journey that Jamie goes through with this, and also Steve, his neighbour, the, the pair of them go through, but particularly Jamie, is a journey from... Uh, Jamie's house is, is a bit rough and tumble, but it's safe. Steve's house is not safe. It's yeah. dangerous. You know that if, if the dad finds out that Steve's queer, there's going to be a fight. He's going to get beaten up just as badly as he has been. The first thing we learn about Steve is he gets beaten up if he burns the dinner. But there's a sort of feeling that maybe the home with uh, Linda Henry's got is going to be... that. That's quite... A, it's scrappy, but it works. Mm. What there is in this that there isn't in straight rom-com is a feeling that your home life and your safety is conditional yeah. and it's conditional on not being yourself. And there's a slow journey towards um, the, the two boys finding each other and accepting who they are and that they love each other. But the key scene for me was where they go and find the pub and they find the pub. They take the 180 bus. Yeah. They find out from the back of gay times that there's a gay friendly pub. That's a bus ride away. And she follows in a taxi smoking in the taxi in the way you could in the olden <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, when it's it was so cool. cool. <laughs> and they get to the gay pub and in there is Dave Lynn, the drag queen from Faking It, which is very exciting yeah, for me yeah. as a Faking It Absolutely. fan. Absolutely. Um, and there's a brilliant scene where they are teased by the drag queen with no malice. And they're just surrounded on a long single shot by loads of people who are like them and who like them, and they feel safe. And you go, there's the other family. And I went, oh, good, they found the other family. They found a safe place, and it's the Gloucester Arms. Yeah. And then when they come home, you realise, oh, God, this place, this, this film is so clever. It said, don't worry, we're not going to make it so the Gloucester Arms are where they have to go. 
they just now have another safe place to go. But home is still safe. And then the final scene is to is the final admission that actually they don't have to leave and run away. They don't have to run away to sea. They don't have to run away to to join the drag army. They can just stay That's at home. Boathouse with James Wilby and River yeah. The answer at the end of it is the people who've got to change are not these two kids. Yeah, it's the mum. <laughs> it's a film where telling the truth sets you free. Amazing. And, yes. Yes. And the thing about the kind of gay art that I'd seen before was that the message of something like, for example, Morris, which is a brilliant film, don't yeah. get me wrong, is that telling the truth is dangerous. Yes. And that telling the truth will get you in trouble. And, you know, Jamie, who, as you say, has known all along and been relatively comfortable with his sexuality, is set free by the fact he no longer has to keep it from his mum. Yeah. Stee is set free from the violence of his family. They're going to hit him anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So the internalised shame that he feels about this reason for being hit, he can be freed from. It's a film, I think, about what I call the magic pill. Because there's, <laughs> there's a moment in... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say every queer life, I don't know enough about other queer identities, certainly in every gay life, where you realise that if you could have the magic pill, you wouldn't take it. Right. And in teenage years, for me, and early 20s, and this, you know... I don't think this is just a Generation X experience. I've heard this from older and younger people. The first realisation is you go, aha, right, this isn't as easy as the other option. Right. That's a shame, and that's going to be difficult. And a lot of time, for a lot of people, that manifests as, I just wish I could wake up tomorrow and be straight. And then you come to a point, which Jamie comes to in the film, and maybe Steve does as well, where you think, oh, I don't want the pill. And for me, this film was a big part of, of realising I didn't want the pill, and that actually... You know that difference is something that subsequently has enriched my life in more ways than I could, I could possibly think of. Jonathan Harvey is often asked, apparently, if he thinks they'll stay together, and it doesn't matter. Yes, because their relationship with each other has done its job. Yeah, I mean the the playing film are sort of pushing thirty years old now. So Jamie and Steer, mid forties, and you know thirty nine on Grinder, and almost <laughs> almost certainly haven't seen each other for decades. Because who's with the person that they got off with when they were fifteen? Yes, it's not got a happy ever after. Yeah. I thought one of the things I really loved about this was that it um, William Goldman's advice: get into the story as late as you can and out of the story as early as you yeah. can. You're expecting them to sort of uh, get together and go, "Oh, I, I'll love you forever." The, the full romance, the real classic romantic film thing, but it doesn't. It ends with them just dancing on concrete yeah. and the neighbours. The great thing is, as, the, as that, that last shot with uh, the mum comes and joins and the neighbour comes and joins, and they, they join them for the dance, and you suddenly realise they've got the support of their community. But then the people who are around on the edge of them on the Thamesmead concrete some of them are smiling and some of them are disgusted yeah. here stay what imagine your dad's face <laughs> because you go oh it hasn't finished yeah. this, this, their journey hasn't stopped they, they get out of the story at the moment that you as an audience are going to feel the highest feel the best feel the most affirmed and what they're doing and what you're talking about with, uh, with what this film's done for you is the pure definition of what representation is yeah. Can you see yourself on screen? Now, you can see yourself, as in, can you see yourself in all your failures and all your weaknesses? Or can you see yourself on screen in all your triumph, all your glory, the best person you could be? And this is a film that puts on screen the banal ordinariness of, what if you just loved someone? And what if you could see someone on screen who you could emulate? Yeah. And, or be, or hope to be in that environment? It's just the perfect demonstration of why it's important for people to be able to see themselves on screen and not see it be a tragic ending or a, a dramatic ending. It's that optimism because, you know, when I say it's a fairy story, it doesn't just take the idea of you know, somebody growing up gay and alone and thinking, oh God, what if there's no one else like me? Well, as it turns out, there is someone like you. And by the way, it's the person you have a crush on. And by the way, it's a hot footballer. And by the way, he lives next yeah. door. <laughs> this is how not alone you are. That's literally somebody who then is commandeered into your room. Yes. You know, it, it, and your mum says, would you two like to sleep together? Sleep together in a bed. <laughs> and, and, that, and, and that, you know, the, the scene of peppermint foot lotion scene where um, Steve's been beaten up by his brother and Jamie doesn't have anything to um, sort of soothe it with except yeah. some peppermint foot lotion, which he puts on his back. And just the, the delicacy of, you know, it's a joke, but it's such a tender and romantic joke when... Jamie says to Steve, I'll do your front turn over. And Steve says, I can't. Yeah. And it's because he doesn't want Jamie to know yes. why he can't turn over. Um, and that's the only part of, of that scene that's, that's about sex in any way, really. Yeah. Um, 
I it's saw all about it with, tenderness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I saw it with a, a straight friend of mine um, when I first saw it in the cinema. And after the peppermint foot lotion scene, they <laughs> went. Jamie asked Steve if they can sleep. Uh, you know, top not to top, not yes. top to if they can sleep. Do you want to cut my end? Yeah, pretty, yeah. <laughs> the scene cuts out, and they they wake up spooning. Yeah, and that's you know just stereotypically the most romantic way that it's possible to sleep in a bed with somebody. And the friend of mine that I was watching with started snorting with laughter because he assumed it was a bumming joke. Oh. And it made me. It, it, it didn't crystallise this thought, I, but. It was because, of course, that um, the idea of homosexuality is something other than sexual. The idea of, yeah. of homosexuality is something romantic and tender wasn't necessarily in the public eye yeah. in, in the mid nineties. You know, there weren't there weren't gay rom coms, yeah. um, and when homosexuality, male homosexuality, appeared in the mass media, it was usually jokes about sex. Yeah, and it was it was all about another. sodomy. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, God, that weird thing. Jeremy Clarkson, thing, I can't stop thinking about bottoms. Well, that's your problem and <laughs> yeah. not anyone else's. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a strange, yeah, that, especially that strange obsession that was around at the time I was at a school and it was always that all that sort of back-to-the-wall lad, sort of that, that sort of joshing, awful sort of rugby locker room josh. And it was never about any idea that this was the same as heterosexual love. And I think what's liberating about this, realising the time it came out, and realising also, God, disgracefully, how late this came out. I mean, yeah. it's a long time ago, but it's also, it's not that long ago. Yeah. That this, the ordinariness of this film, the mundanity of it, it's about two teenagers who fall in love. Yeah. And it's, it's also about how unhappiness and a lack of love and a lack of attention can go toxic. Yes. Because the jeopardy comes from the next-door neighbour character, Leah, played by amazingly by Tamika Empson. Incredible. Um, who is... Uh, it's another teenager. Yeah, obsessed with Mama Cass and desperate for someone to take notice of her. Yeah. Because her mother doesn't. And she turns her music up really, really loud to all the neighbours just so that yeah. people will look at she, her. Yeah, she is acting out in every way. You only had to ask, Trevor. You know, I'd do anything for you. She has a brilliantly horrible relationship with Jamie's mum. Yeah. They are vile and vicious to each other. So when they dance together at the end as a gesture of solidarity, that's another note, yeah, yeah, yeah. another sort of harmony that's come together. But she's the one that at a typically awful 90s teenage party um, says to Steve, you know, I heard what you were doing through the, the walls of paper thin, she says. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think Tony hits you every time? Why do you think your brother hits you every time you come home from Jamie's? She basically says, everyone knows and I'm going to tell them and make, and make it worse. So the jeopardy doesn't just come from Steve being in the closet and, and, and fearing exposure. It comes from her saying, I will expose you yeah. because I'm unhappy and I'm unloved and nobody takes yes. any notice of me. When was the last time your Trevor hit you? Was it to you? I bet you was Thursday. So? You see, that's when I told him. That's when I lied. Give her a knee. No, it's all right. I'm not after sympathy. Yeah, she's making that classic teenage noise yeah. to attract a, a eyes to her. She's the person who, weirdly, you feel, because uh, this is a nice, safe story, she's the person you feel is probably high, at highest risk. Yeah. And she's the person that, uh, beautifully, because it's a really well-written uh, script and the, the, the way the, the characters play off each other, she's the person who Jonathan Harvey puts in jeopardy, puts in a position of risk, and deals with it very, very honestly, because she just gets very, very high uh, on something or other, and nearly gets run over, and is mm. saved by uh, by the fantastic uh, boyfriend character. Tony, played by Ben Daniels. Uh, which is a magnificent... I mean, he's there as the comic relief, but also somewhere in him is the soul of this as well. I don't know why he's, he's, he's just a funny character. And yet I think he's utterly real. I don't feel with him like I do in Mike Lee films, where there's someone who's of a very, very marginally different class and they don't fit. He's great. He's this sort of slightly posher hippie slumming it. Yeah. And I just think he's brilliant. Jamie. How old are you? Old enough. How old are you? 27. Not old enough to be your dad, right? What? Sure. What? It's just shit, isn't it? What? The whole concept. Yeah. But he has to go because he doesn't get it. Yes. So, and and, and the way Sandra splits up with him at the end is just, so it's funny. Just, it's so funny, and it's just she realizes that he doesn't. He 
he fatally doesn't quite understand her life. And it's only... He's a tourist. He's a tourist. Yeah, and everybody hates a tourist, especially when he thinks it's all such a laugh. Also from 1996. No, Tony, I think you better go. Here. Stick that down the street for us, will you? He's dumped and has to dump something. It's yeah. a beautiful bit of writing. And, and, and her... Um, her sexual overtures are say, tapping him on the shoulder and saying, Tony, sort me out. Sort me out. <laughs> um, but he's, he's also, of course, the recipient of the uh, my favourite line in the film um, because it's at a moment of high drama. It's a moment where such jeopardy as this fairy tale has is at its highest, <laughs> where uh, Jamie has been, you know, his mother has found out that he's gay. Yeah. Um, he's got a lot of internalised shame going on. It's not the It's not been the best conversation he's in pieces and tony asks jamie what's wrong and jamie comes up with a whole list of slurs to say that he's gay and why's she so upset because i'm a queer a bender puffer, knob shiner brown at her shirt flap lifter I, I get the picture just leave me alone and she knows this no i thought i'd tell you first i thought i'd tell you first it's a brilliant <laughs> line <laughs> It's such, <laughs> such a good one because you need a laugh at that point. Yes, um, and it comes entirely from truth. He's not. He's not sort of. He's not really sassing at that point. No, it's just don't ask such fucking stupid questions when I'm in misery over here. It's a really good script for good one-liners yeah. that come entirely from character, which is it's just that's what good comedy is. A scene like that where he's doing the the full straight down the lens list of uh, uh, homosexual abuse, um, that could feel rightly. But yeah. because it's all from character and because the punchline at the end of it is completely organic, that their reaction is, is is so natural. It's a really good, naturalistically funny script that when you write it down, you go, those are really funny lines. Yeah. But no one's gagging at each other. So it is a comedy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely oh, it is a rom-com in the proper sense of a romantic comedy. Yeah. And another example is, you know, after Jamie's coming out, you get Sandra talking to Steve and then suddenly she's got Steve crying in her house because because you know he has been outed as well and he's sobbing and he needs a tissue and she says to Jamie Jamie get him an Anki it's a box of autumnal shades by my bed it's delivered with Victoria Wood precision I I wrote down a list of just brilliant lines where she's trying to identify uh, who Monet is he painted the 16th chapel (laughs) done with complete confidence and you go well that's something that Jonathan Ivey's aunt must have said it's a really good from life malapropism there's a brilliant line where Jamie's talking to Tony where'd you meet my mum? planet earth where? ah you know out and about here and there what's a place? place is just somewhere where you know, shit happens. Yeah, but where? Gateways. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, they're beautiful sitcom lines, but weirdly, never delivered in that way. And I was fascinated by this because it was the, the it was only released in the cinema because it had been so well made. It was meant to be for TV. Yeah. So you could imagine this as almost like the last gaffe of when they used to make TV like this. Yeah. And it has got TV values. And interesting, Hetty McDonald hasn't done but one more film, mainly TV work. So everyone on this is TV, but it doesn't feel like EastEnders or Grange Hill. It doesn't feel like it's that. Well, even though that heritage of sort of realist teen drama is in it, yeah. it's got the best of both worlds. It feels like a terrific telly show. It feels like a terrific bunch of episodes from a telly show you really like. That's a really good way of putting it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
transmit the HIV virus via frottage. What's frottage? It's yoghurt. It's French. The delicacy of the writing isn't just in the jokes as well. I think it's extraordinary when Sandra challenges Jamie and said he was seen going into the Gloucester. And, yeah, yeah. And she says that's where gay people go. She yeah. can't quite associate the thing with him yet. Yeah. She's not saying you're going into the Gloucester because you're in your gate. That's where gay people go. It's, it's the You won't delicacy. do the final bit of logic. I, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really, well, I mean, partly it's down to, everyone is really good. It's, a good. it's all good performances. And she is particularly, I mean, single out. Yeah, it's totally her film. And I can't believe she didn't go on to become a massive film star. Um, and she's obviously gone uh, on, on to EastEnders. Or it almost feels like that's a, this feels like, what you do when you've been in EastEnders and this launches you into a massive Brenda Blethyn-style yeah. Hollywood career. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it... When you think of the sort of contemporary award-nominated performances, Brenda Blethyn, Marianne Jean-Baptiste for yeah. Secrets and Lies, they're both terrific performances, but I think Linda Henry's is every bit their equal. Not like my dad. No. You're like me. How am I weird? Just give it a rest, Jamie. Christ. You said it. You're all right. Okay. So you got me for a mother, but who said life was easy? You are. You're all right. It's one of those great female performances. It reminded me a little bit of the performance that uh, Rebecca Staten gives in Raised by Wolves. Yes. Where it's a matriarch who is Clint Eastwood. She's just got those man with no name eyes, and you just know she's mean and hard and flinty, but think again i feel safe i don't think she's a bad mum yeah and also she's all powerful within the world of the household you know yeah tony defers to her jamie obviously defers to her but you've also got the strand of her desperately wanting to get a job working in a pub or running a pub yeah. because she wants to she wants to improve uh, her life and you know what you've talked about before brilliantly about the um the chink 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 of money yeah yeah uh, there, there is a whole underlying thing of money is very tight in this family so when she gives Stee a fiver to buy a present for what she thinks is his girlfriend, or when she says to Tony, I went robbing for that boy. Yeah, yeah. That whole element that she becomes smaller yeah. and less herself when she's trying to get these jobs that yes, she really needs. Yes, which is in her interviews and things where yeah. she can be full. Yes, it gives her a softness because she can be tricked. She's tricked into doing a, an off-colour joke at the yeah. interview by her boss. And you go, oh, God, your position when you're in the bar is different than your position at home. Yeah. Um, and that is something, yeah, I, I've talked about this a lot because I'm fascinated by this. It was a thing that I came up with in conversation with Simon Cain, which is one of the things that's missing from a lot of sitcoms as a motive, is what we call the, the chink of departing coin. <laughs> because most people in the world, unless you're really, really well off, are obsessed by the fact that money's running out yeah. and it's amazing how many sitcoms which tend to be made by people who are probably in quite an affluent position to be afford to be writers and performers and things like that don't have any sense of the cost of everything whereas all the greatest sitcoms and certainly the ones that don't, certainly have hit the biggest audiences Only Fools and Horses Royal Family Our Feed Ain't Pet thousands of these are about people who there's a motive of uh, not poverty necessarily but they're worried about money the problem is with with sitcoms a lot of the time and and dramas and things where they're looking for that as a motive is because you need a big house to film in yeah very often like people always say about the friends flat going how are they affording oh it's rent control they're filmed in glamorous looking places one of the great things that's fascinating about a genuinely uh a genuinely high stakes we're worried about money situation is you're in a small place yeah you're in a small flat no one wants to film in those small flats they're bloody awful but they are where people really live those houses are the size of people's real houses and houses on tv are much bigger uh, and the motive of what do we do for money is absent from a lot of TV comedy and a lot of film comedy. They kind of want to run a cupcake shop. Yeah. It's the bridesmaids. Oh, my dream was, yeah. oh God, are you not worried about money at all? Yeah. And I find it sort of slightly annoying and the, the blindness to that. What's great about this is this is set in a world where money is really important and people are desperate, but it's not poverty tourism. No. It's not one of those, not gritty bafta, grifty bafta, gritty bafta. <laughs> no one pisses on anybody. It's, they're, they're nice people and they're going to be all right. With, with regard to that, I, I was just out of university, age 22, when I saw it. I was living in my first flat in London, which was um, an ex-council flat above a row of shops in the shadow of a tower block. And having grown up uh, relatively privileged, I remember watching Beautiful Thing and, and the, way it, yeah. the way it really creates how claustrophobic the estate can be. 
and watching it thinking, God, imagine living somewhere like that, and then walking home to my flat and realising that I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, there's a certain... The drama is more intense because you're cheek by jowl. You've got nowhere to go. You can't escape to a different room. Yeah. And that that realism applies to a, a lot of the casting as well because you, you you can think about... I'm thinking about Jamie and Steve in particular, who... While they're, you know, they're good-looking lads, but it's not Ryan Murphy's beautiful thing. You know, they're not no. Prada models who look as if they spend eight hours in the gym. Who, thirty-two-year-old yeah, Prada models who yeah, look yeah, as if yeah. they spend eight hours in the gym. They look like two relatively good-looking British teenagers. That's why. That's why it reminded me of Bill Forsyth. This is just a queer Gregory's girl. It is the yeah. stakes are that small. It is that charming. Uh, it is set on those kind of estates. It's, it's Cumbernauld and Thamesmead, similar. Yeah. That feel. My big takeaway was, oh my God, I can't believe I hadn't noticed there wasn't a queer one of these. Yeah. It's interesting as well as a teenage film in that it's about people finding their identity. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I think it's an enjoyable film. Oh, I see it's an amazing film if it's the first queer romance you've seen. <laughs> but I think any teenager would get something from it in the sense of it going, this is about people finding out who they are. And over the film, getting happier and happier and more confident in their own skin. And by the end of it, the fact that other people might judge you, the thing you're most worried about as a teenager suddenly becomes not important. It's up to those people to adapt to you. Mm. And there's a lovely journey for the characters in them finding themselves. Well, particularly for, for Jamie, who, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, he is, he is less conflicted about who he is yeah. um, than Steve, but he has come to understand the importance of concealment. Yeah. And I think that's, it's not just queer lives, I think anyone who's different growing up learns a great deal about this is what I can let people see and this is what has to be a secret. There's masking um, and things. It could be yeah. you're a neurodivergent or you could be, uh, you could, you could be into weird shit. Who yeah, knows? Absolutely. And, and w w with Jamie, there's just a sense that some things that are very private and very secret, the moment he finds that he's not alone, that there's someone else, and my God, it's the person he's got a crush on who might be interested, he becomes more and more himself. He gets, for want of a better word, camper as the film goes on. Now, <laughs> already he's, you know, he's a 15-year-old whose mum, on a terms of me to say, whose mum says to him when she wants to cheer him up, do you want to watch The Sound of Music? But <laughs> Yeah, she seems to understand him. Yeah. I don't know why it's such a surprise to yeah. her. <laughs> well, that's the amazing scene, just to sidebar, um, into It's a Sin again, um, the amazing scene of that series, which I know we're not here to talk about, but there's a moment towards the end of it, spoilers, where Keely Hawes, as another uh, very different kind of mother of a gay son, uh, is in hospital. And Ruth Sheen, the brilliant character actor Ruth Incredible. Sheen, comes in. And you think that she's going to be kindly and understanding and say, yes, my son's ill too, and let me support you whatever way I can. And she just tears a strip off Keely Hall. Do you think I should have known? Maybe. Who's this? It's my son, Richie. You didn't know Richie was gay? <laughs> Excuse me, what do you mean? What the hell were you looking at? I beg your pardon. If you didn't know he was gay all those years, what did you see? When he was 11, when he was 15, 16. How old is he? 30? All 30 years and every little speck of him is bent as a nine-bob note since the day he was born. I'll ask you again, love. What were you looking at? What the fuck were you looking at? Yes. And it's such an extraordinary moment. And that's, that's another one of the ways in which Beautiful Thing, to bring it back, tells you... Um, that we're going to be okay because Sandra knows who she's looking at. She yes. may not have made the connection that it means her son is gay, but she asks him who plays the, the Baroness in the Sound of Music. That's a film gay people watch. Yeah. <laughs> the barbers um, place gay people go. Yeah, this exactly. is all photos of things that gay people have on the wall. Yeah. And, and grant, there's this, there's this journey um, that Jamie has over the course of the film from this quiet, private, I must keep myself secret individual to something a lot queenier. There's the moment when Jamie and Steve are having their very intense conversation where they sort of come out to each other, probably having already had some kind of physicality yes. together, but they, <laughs> they now have to come out uh, and say that it means something. And Steve asks Jamie, are you gay? And Jamie says, I'm very happy, which is, <laughs> which, it's, which is incredibly queenie because it's also deflection. Very happy. Yes. It's not just camp, it's, a deflect, it's deflecting the question. Later on, Steve gives Jamie a present and he goes full camp. Now, what a pretty head. It's the prettiest hat I ever did see, Master Stephen. Since me and we're engaged. And Steve is made very uncomfortable by yeah. it, as he is when they're reading Gay Times, and there's a letter from somebody in North London saying, I'm gay and unhappy, and Jamie says, Get over that river, mate, I'll make you out there. <laughs> this, is not, you know, this is not just gay, it's very queenie. And you just see that this is something that he is allowing out, that has, or, that has been repressed and suppressed, 
And because he's met someone else like him, yeah, uh, he's able to let that flow, even though Steve, you know, isn't that kind of isn't that kind of person at all. You know, Steve's got an Arsenal bedspread. Yeah, I love the Arsenal bedspread. <laughs> I like all the the representations of masculinity in it. I find really interesting, as in that his his neighbour who the, the the lovely warmth of saying he flirts with the neighbour, and the neighbour says yes rather than no, which was another possibility. I was watching this for the first time. I thought maybe he falls in love with the guy next door, and the guy next door goes, "Keep away from me, you you yeah. bender." Yeah. That's entirely possible, but it's not. It's a it's a warm, affirming thing where where love is possible. Mm. It's not rejected. But all the trappings of that bedroom, the footballness of it, and the violence of the two boys next door, because basically it's the dad and the drug dealer brother mm. it's all men they're all horrible to each other they don't talk properly it's a, just a, a place full of toxic masculinity where Steve is feminized Steve makes the dinner yes Steve takes the beatings he's, he's, <laughs> he's the mum and they've, they've done to him and then when Tony arrives the sort of slightly uh, hippie-ish boyfriend uh, Sandra's boyfriend he's a different sort of masculinity a mm. sort of slightly foppish stupid ineffectual masculinity but again it keeps showing these other models of masculinity and none of them are as attractive or as functional a masculinity yeah. as his queenie camp masculinity, which is quite confident and cocky and himself. And the more confident he gets, he goes, oh, I appear to be this kind of man. Yeah. And I haven't had to be those kind of men. And I loved that. I don't know why it's interesting, but it is interesting that when you talk about different kinds of masculinity, that uh, I believe the only out male actor in the film is Ben Daniels, who plays Tony. Really? Um, <laughs> Uh, so you've, you, you've got the wheels within wheels there. Uh, I should clarify, when I talk about the feminising of Steve in his house and mention um, that you know he cooks the dinner and he takes the beatings, I'm talking about a feminisation that comes from toxic masculinity. Yes, I'm yes, not yes. saying that, that's what it is to be a yes. woman. Um, and that's what I mean about the truth-setting Steve Free that I mentioned earlier on. Steve's realisation is there is no point trying to be who these people want me to be because yeah. they're going to hit me anyway. Yeah, which yeah. is a very different and probably more powerful realization than Jamie's, because Jamie's got love and support yeah, in yeah. a way that Steve hasn't. You know, when we talk about some disapproving faces when they dance on the yeah. estate at the end, Steve's dad and brother could walk into that into yeah. that square, tear him away, and kick ten bells out of it. But you but don't the, think the, of that. You don't. That doesn't. You don't think of it at all. And also, the film has led you to a point where you realize that there would be some people who would stop that happening. Because yeah. it's also about, when I talk about it as a, a fairy tale and a film about safety, it's also a film about not being alone. And that's, yeah. that's certainly what it was for me, even at 22, with several relationships with men under my belt and, and above my belt. Um, <laughs> it, it just, a, you know, a reminder um, that there are, there are thousands of us, you know, is, is yeah. something that you, you need to be told from time to time. The oh, second time it really hit me was the scene where they go to the pub. And they're surrounded. And it's a single unbroken shot of just a room full of people who don't mind. Not yeah. even they don't mind. They are totally for this. And I thought, well, that's kind of the end of the story because it's accepted. What I loved was it then brought it home mm. and said that that kind of acceptance doesn't just exist in these. There's no point in having that kind of acceptance if it just happens in these three bars. There's no mm. point if it's just old Compton Street. It's just, it's just these four. But it needs to be in your home. It needs mm. to be in your community. It needs to be in society. And this play is written and comes from a time when society had said uh, actually i tell you what there's conditions to this do it over there uh, behind closed doors as long as you don't shove it down my throat all yeah. that stuff all that awful awful uh, the sun says kind of attitude mm. and this is a film that says do you know what it's no good if you drive it underground or make it happen out of sight it needs to be in public you need to be able to hold hands yeah which you still can't not not safely I, you know i i've yeah. been married for five years and i still do a little check of the surroundings if Jesus. i want to hold my husband's hand uh, because you have to, and we're you know we're both middle-aged people over six foot, where where traditionally things ought to be less dangerous for us. Um, bear in mind as well that Steve hates the Gloucester. Steve says <laughs> after, after he's been there, he hates it because it is a lot, particularly for somebody as closeted as Steve. I yeah. I found gay pubs terrifying as a teenager, partly because you know I talk about sexual orientation as being a lot more than sex and not being about romance, but you know. They're incredibly sexual places to be as a teenager. They, yeah. there's a, there's, there's something that is frightening about that atmosphere, and I think it's really honest. And again, fits in with the the characters that we've seen. That Jamie sort of loves it there. Yeah. And Steve's a bit uncomfortable. There's a bit where the drag queen says, "So, Jamie, I think I'll have two of you and ten of your mate alone." <laughs> well, that's. And you see Jamie laughing and Steve's really uncomfortable. It reminded me of walking into gay pubs with gay friends when I was, say, 2021. 20, mm. 
and I was, it was a strange thing of going, I went, this feels a bit weird because everyone's looking at you. Mm. I was younger and thinner and better looking. <laughs> but people used to look at you and bother you. And, and I'd go, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be a woman. And it was as simple as that, going, oh my God, I'm being objectified. A thing that I was not aware of at all as a man. If I'd gone through puberty as a girl, I would know that was normal. Yeah. But I remember finding it sort of shockingly sexual, going into gay bars mm. and being sort of checked out. And I just remember thinking, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with this if I'd come in here and I was gay and this was, they go, and here is your world now. <laughs> what, this? I mean, this is scary. And the big thing, certainly for me and for, for a lot of gay people that I've talked to, there's that awful, prissy, Late teens, early 20s, well, I may be that, but I'm not like them. Right. Which is all internalised shame and internalised homophobia and is responsible for, you know, life for more femme-presenting gay people being made harder and harder and for camp being suppressed and all the things that, you know, that we, we, we should be able to grow past. And a lot of gay people do grow past, but there's that pretty much any gay person I know is at a point when they're about 20 where they say, yeah, I mean, it's not the most interesting thing about me. Yeah, yeah. The uh, That whole distancing thing. And to be able to embrace the entire community and say, okay, we have something in common yeah. and we are, you know, we have a, a siblinghood and we understand something and we have a shared experience that isn't shared by the majority of society is incredibly powerful. But you don't get it the first time you go in a gay bar. The no. first time you go in a gay bar, you're like, I'm not like them, am I? Oh, oh no! God. What's your name, Petal? Jamie. Oh. She just made me feel like I want to get my breast out too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like chicken tonight. <laughs> I mean, when when I came out, I came out in a very gradual way, in a in a very safe environment, because my parents, although you know they were born in the thirties and they didn't necessarily understand it, but they'd been around gay people. Um, your parents were of a theatrical background, a liberal... And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and But I, I, I stress again, also born in the 30s. I don't know if anyone at my school was gay. And if you say that to somebody who's at school now yeah. or is in their early 20s now, they will say, you know, oh, well, there was this guy in the year above and there was this girl. Yeah. There. And it turns out that one of my closest friends uh, when I was at school was a gay woman and we were both closeted from each other when we were at school. I think there was a gay guy in the in the year below but that's, you know, in my year of 180 people, as far as I'm aware, I was the only gay man, which I won't have been. Yeah, this yeah. is how much this stuff wasn't talked about. So um, your, par your parents are supportive, but not, but they are old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and they, you know, they, they so my, you know, my dad was 31 when homosexuality was decriminalised. So yeah. that, uh, lots of formative time has happened with the idea of this thing is a crime. And I don't think it should be because I'm liberal, but also it is kind of a crime. Yeah. I don't think they thought there was anything wrong with homosexuality, but I think my dad in particular thought there was something necessarily tragic about it. Yes. Which is, which is where you know, something like Beautiful Thing, again, we're talking about it as a corrective. Um, totally. Uh, but my, par my parents were, were more concerned with, with artistic pursuits than anything else. When I, <laughs> when I came out to my... I, I initially, like a lot of gay Gen Xers, I came out initially as bisexual when I was 19, and my dad said, does that mean you've written poems I haven't seen? <laughs> <We're> what? <laughs> We're worried, yes, you, you haven't felt free to share your artistic endeavours with us. Well, also, and, you know, I, I never sort of, while my dad was alive, I, my mum's, before she died, my mum met my husband and, uh, you know, it was all completely out in the open. But we didn't really talk about things subsequently with dad before he died. He died when I was 30. Um, but in my late 20s, I wrote a play, um, which was very unequivocally gay. It was just a gay play. And I very nervously emailed it to my dad. I was about 26. Emailed it to dad, a playwright. Thought, well, that's that done. Uh, that sort of saved me the, the full <laughs> full coming out conversation. And he phoned me the next day and I said, hello. He said, hello. What did you think of the play? I said, he said, I think you need to work on the structure in the second act. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> he was wrong. The second act was tight as a drum. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that was that's a very sort of middle-class British... Yeah. We're going to say it without saying it. We'll talk about everything else apart from that. So we're worried yeah. about poetry, the structure of the second act. This yeah. yeah, it's it's strange that shift and the, the shame that came with it. I my mum and my dad telling me when I was about 13, 14, sitting down very seriously with me and saying, they said, uh, let me just tell you this, because my dad's of the same generation. He said, right, um, I will throw you out on the street if you come to me and say you've taken drugs, mm. that you've got a tattoo, or you're gay. And I think there was some internalized homophobia my dad's fine with that stuff now mm. this was long this was in the 80s when when this stuff was going on when close 28 was going on and i think his thing was i'm worried about you getting in trouble 
Mm. And I think some of it was basic homophobia and some of it was just saying, I don't want you coming to me and telling me you're going to make your life really complicated. And also a belief in choices. So yeah. whether or not you take drugs is a choice, whether or not you get a tattoo is a choice. But if you decided to turn into one of those gays just to get my attention, because <laughs> I've seen that Marilyn on the television yeah. and, it, and that boy George, and it's just this trouble with all the gender benders. Mm. There was a feeling there was something contagious going around and it was gayness. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you see the same moral panic happening with young trans people at the yeah, moment. Exactly. And, uh, as if, it's only because you've seen it before that you go, oh, this again. Oh, this yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's a this again thing. And, you know, that's why I, like, as I mentioned earlier, like many people sort of tried the, the, the half step of, of identifying as bisexual for a yeah. bit. Um, now, real bisexuals exist. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of actually bisexual and pansexual people. But also, um, a lot of gay people think it's, it's somehow easier. Safer? Uh, safer, less... I don't know. I don't know what it is. They get um, to enjoy the films with, with boys and girls <laughs> in. Well, they I don't have to just watch Beautiful Thing over and over again. I, 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 I think it's also, again, it's part of that sort of internalised shame, internalised homophobia of I cannot fully close the door uh, on the idea of attraction to women because then I'm definitely different um, and I'm definitely other. Whereas if I maintain the possibility that I might yeah. have a relationship with a woman, then I'm not as other as I as, as I might think. I mean, the fact is, while identifying, telling people that I was bisexual, if I did at all, I wasn't dating women. <laughs> um, <laughs> interestingly, one of the most revealing things about you know how it's different to grow up straight, I don't know what it's like to grow up straight, and most people don't even think about the fact that they're growing yeah. up straight, right? There's a default human myth. Yeah. That whatever the majority is, go, that's default. All the others are, are, are variations or deviations from Or that. attention-seeking yeah. or just wanting to be different. Yeah. And it's like... Um, I've got quite a few uh, straight friends to this day who love a sort of loltastic joke. Oh, is that when you said you were bisexual? And it's like, okay, you can laugh it up, but that was something that came from a lot of pain and a lot of fear hmm. and from a desire not to be different. And yeah. the, desi the desire not to be different, it's a, it's a whole part of whether you take the pill or not, um, yeah. uh, whether you take the magic straight pill. Eventually, if you're lucky... And if you're honest, you get to the point of, I'm, well, I'm just as different as anybody else. It's just my difference manifests itself yeah. in this way. And again, looping back to the film, Beautiful Thing was one of the first films to say, this is something that you may see as different, but here's all the ways in which this is just a story about two teenagers falling yeah. in love. Now, there's a whole debate you could have about heteronormativity there and whether we should be saying to the wider world, no, we're different and you better fucking deal with it. Or whether we should be saying, actually, we're more like you. And, you know, yeah, I'm not going to get into that whole debate. But, but I think that the final scene, I mean, it's interesting that we, we talked about a film. I've never done a, a, a discussion of a film where we start to start with the ending. Yeah. Where, where there's no point holding them back. Because the reason you're watching this is to say, these, these kids will be okay. And the ending, wait for the ending, it's going to be beautiful. But the ending, the message of that ending is the message of this film. Without that ending, the film is confusing and it might even be sort of meaningless. What it says, that ending, is that... In whatever way you're different, there are other people who are different, and you, so you're not alone. And also, that the people who might judge you for being different, it's up to them to adapt. There are, at the end of this, there are some people dancing beautifully in the middle of a concrete space, and suddenly, and impossibly, they're surrounded by witnesses and people, so society comes to look at them. And it's the opposite of being closeted. It's suddenly, it's out in the open, in a judgmental space. They're not in a gay pub they've not escaped yeah. to, to the island of lesbians or whatever they talk about <laughs> in the film they've not escaped to go they haven't had to go away somewhere they can stay where they are and it was up to society to catch up and what society has to look at them and see is nothing at all yeah it is a film that ends up with a with a police a-frame board that says no incident <laughs> here <laughs> were you a witness to nothing at all <laughs> and it's an incredibly powerful thing to say you can tell the story of this film through its soundtrack as well yeah because as you say at the very beginning we have It's Getting Better. Things are getting better. You then go to One Way Ticket, Take Me Anywhere. Yeah. There's a situation that I need to get out of. The incredibly romantic scene when Jamie and Steve kiss in the woods because they've got nowhere else to yeah, go yeah. is set to make your own kind of music, yeah, sing your own special song, even if nobody else sings along. Yeah. A very important lyric. And then the end this sense of possibility it ends with dream a little dream yeah this is a dream this is a fantasy but it's a fantasy that there is no reason shouldn't exist in reality yes. and it doesn't quite yet things have got better but that dancing in the sunshine did change my life because i thought yeah okay there's no reason why this shouldn't happen sweet dreams till sunbeams find you
there's no reason why I should be ashamed of any of this. There's no reason why I shouldn't demand that I get to dance with somebody in the sunshine. And yeah. that's a, a really, really powerful and, and beautiful thing to learn. That's amazing. Honestly, I've, I've, I've loved this film. I've, I hadn't seen it. Thank you for bringing Beautiful Thing. Uh, thank you for letting me. Uh, what a lovely thing. Presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>